it's hard to see the forest for the trees when it comes to next generation cloud because we're we google and google cloud are constantly iterating on the efficiency and the functionality of our platform and you know all the csps are doing that all the cloud service providers are doing that but i did give this some thought and i i I want to focus on on GPUs. I think the next generation cloud is going to first of all, GPUs are very hard to get, and they're too ex in in some customers' eyes too expensive um, for certain things. But what we're starting to see is people are accommodating that, or uh, they're adapting to that by making their computations more efficient and becoming more specialized. And I think what's going to happen next generation cloud is you're going to be able to buy, you're going to be able to purchase a slice of a resource as opposed to the whole resource. And it's going to become sort of more obfuscated from instead of saying, um, I need to purchase uh, or I need to run a GP, uh, a host with a GPU attached, I can run a host with only a quarter or an eighth of a GPU attached, what we call a slice of a GPU. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to open up all sorts of new workloads that, like I mentioned earlier, um, the immersive stream for XR, for example, some of those workloads don't need an entire GPU. And that's kind of what's holding things back right now from all sorts of things running on cloud is that we need to generate these graphics somehow, but an entire GPU is overkill for uh, you know, visualizing a, a vehicle in your driveway, for example, or playing a very low level game, if you could, if you could assign that task to a portion of a resource or a portion of a GPU, mm -hmm. that's going to allow you to sort of multiply your user base by, you know, five, 10 uh, fold mm -hmm. um, at, a, at a reduced cost. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions, and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper? Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of the head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. My guest today works across all Alphabet companies, providing leadership and support to any workload that depends on GPU acceleration, such as desktop application, visualization, real-time rendering, or simulation. He is a C-suite with expertise in spatial computing, cloud computing, next-generation gaming, immersive experiences, and the emerging technologies around the metaverse. We continue our new series today on Headstalk with a conversation about next-generation cloud gaming. But before we get into that, here's a brief message. Axia OneCloud provides secure, geo-redundant backup capabilities enhanced with cybersecurity. It is the world's only cloud integrating cyber protection with Atlassian products, trusted to accelerate digital transformation by the best organizations around the globe. You can secure your data confidently with protection of more than 20 workload types. Discover what backup and data protection capabilities you gain with the Axia One Cyber Protect Cloud. Harness the power of one solution, one agent, and one console. It delivers the comprehensive cyber protection you seek. Laxia operates over 20 cyber secure data centers across the globe. For more information, contact us at www.laxia.com. 
TED's Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Adrian Graham, the Chief Architect for Cloud Gaming at Google, leverages his sector experience to help define next-generation game development, digital twin and content creation workloads on the cloud. He is a leading subject matter expert and has spent two decades building visual effects pipelines for companies like Industrial Light and Magic, Digital Domain, Technicolor and Double Negative. In 2013, he moved into a product design role at Autodesk, defining the user experiences for Bifrost in Maya. So, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Adrian to Headstore. Delighted to have you here today. Thank you, Elaine. Uh, very excited to be here. Thank you for the invite. Um, I've got to start with this. Is your job as fun and as exciting as it sounds? You know, tell my listeners about your role as Chief Architect, Cloud <laughs> Gaming on Google Cloud, make us jealous. What's your remit and, and current priorities? Oh man, uh, well, fun is subjective, but um, <laughs> so I get to do really interesting things and work on really interesting yet very challenging projects. And uh, I've been at Google for about seven and a half years. Mm -hmm. And I started as a solutions architect for media and entertainment. Um, I basically brought my 20 years of visual effects experience to, mm -hmm. to Google Cloud and to help customers and enable them on cloud. So the, the, the studios that I used to work for, uh, I then helped them um, deploy their workloads on cloud and solve some of the, the challenging problems. But after a number of years, I moved into the cloud gaming group and that allowed me a little bit, uh, actually a lot more sort of breadth of, of, of uh, responsibilities. Mm -hmm. um, I, I moved into focusing on visualization workloads, and that means that I get to work with any customer that has that that wants to run workloads on cloud that need to be uh, simulated or computed using GPUs mm -hmm. and um, and using game engine technology, and that's sort of the 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 tie-in with the gaming group. So the gaming group, the cloud mm -hmm. gaming group in Google Cloud, is. Uh, it's essentially a sales pod with all the biggest gaming customers, and that includes the two uh, game engines, which are uh, Unreal Engine by Epic Games and mm -hmm. Unity. And Unity and Epic Games, or Unreal Engine, have customers far outside of just the gaming group or just the gaming world. So I get to work with uh, customers in not only media and entertainment and gaming, but also architectural visualization, mm -hmm. um, aerospace, uh, uh, manufacturing and engineering, um, any type of immersive experiences, because mm -hmm. it's all running in, with, within game engine technology. And to do that on cloud, there's sort of a complex set of solutions that are required and, and some very specific knowledge mm -hmm. to, to be able to understand the problems and to communicate them and sort of form that bridge between Google and Google's partners, in particular, NVIDIA, uh, mm -hmm. which we'll get into soon. But um, there's there's a lot to talk about when it comes to GPUs and visualization, mm -hmm. and in particular digital twin, which I hope we could get to uh, yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. It does sound like a fun job. <laughs> so I, I'm already a fan. Um, can you share some of your success stories or notable achievements related to your role um, in cloud gaming within Google Cloud? Well, I think first and foremost. Um, I made the jump from the media and entertainment side to the gaming side once uh, we were able to bring this notion of a 
of Virtual Studio to cloud. And Virtual Studio is essentially migrating an entire, what we call an on-prem workload. So everybody has a $10,000 workstation under their desk. And at a facility, there's a room full of computers to run either renders or simulations or compute workloads. Mm -hmm. uh, those things are the, the idea here with Virtual Studio is you move all that into the cloud. Um, that means that you can deploy in a region or in a part of the world or in a city or a country that uh, you won't, you, it, it could be difficult or impossible to build a physical facility or too expensive. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that also means that you can take advantage of uh, artist talent anywhere in the world. So there are reasons why uh, Vancouver and Montreal and Prague uh, and London are so heavy with visual effects is because those local governments, provincial and, and uh, city and, and uh, country governments offer uh, tax incentives for companies to, to mm -hmm. operate in these creative realms there. So you can ask yourself the question as a studio head, do I want to spend 10, 20, 30 million dollars building a facility mm -hmm. um, and staffing it with the talent? Or do I want to deploy in the cloud with very little to no overhead to begin with um, and then hire the talent because you only get the tax rebates on the actual labor, not on the on the building of the facility, which there's different tax incentives for building physical facilities in some ways. But um, that's a different that's a bit of a different story. So anyway, just to I'm sorry, I'm throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall and we're seeing what sticks. I mean, that's, but that's fine. That's fine. But are you, are you... At, at a certain point we were able to shift this mindset of these companies that have been doing um, business the same way for the last 30 years of building a facility and staffing it with people and having a huge amount of network and storage and compute. And now we can do that in the cloud. And we're starting to see all these customers that are um, cloud native, meaning they're content creators, they're either visual effects, animation, mm -hmm. gaming, uh, or other, uh, other type of uh, content being built um, and it's entirely cloud-based. They, they, they might have an office, but they're just full of people on laptops with an external monitor and an internet connection. And that's all that they, all that they need. And I think that's one of the success stories that sort of brought me into this current role in that we sort of got that up and running. And now there's a bunch of partners that are deploying it and managing it and offering it as a service on yes, on GCP, but also on, the other cloud providers and, and some of them private clouds too. But it is, we sort of come into that era now where it's a commodity as mm -hmm. opposed to a bespoke solution deployment. Yeah. Well, con con congratulations on that. And you said you've moved from studio to, to gaming. So let's talk about developments in gaming, cloud gaming. How has this evolved over the years and, and where are we today with this? Interestingly enough, I think there's been a lot of so when we think of gaming we have to think of not just sort of the the visualized sort of sexy part of gaming which is like the end result of the game engine mm -hmm. and the gameplay there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes in any game um even if you download it uh to your playstation 5 yeah. for example you need an internet connection a to download it but uh if you're downloading it from their cloud service but b to play a game that is um, globally distributed uh, or yeah. multiplayer. There's a lot of stuff that has to happen on the back end of the cloud. And some of it is as mundane as matchmaking, which is basically saying, 
I've got this group of players and we need a uh, hundred players to play this round of uh, Fortnite, for example. Mm -hmm. There's all this sort of not so sexy, boring logistics of, you know, I'm gathering the, you know, this number of players from, from these servers in different parts of the world and I'm joining them up uh, based yeah. on their skill levels, for example. Like there's logic that needs to happen back on that back end. Um, and then there's just maintaining player rankings or, um, uh, their, uh, mm -hmm. their, their, the assets that they own, for example, like all those things need to be kept track of. And you have an account, for example, when you log into a gaming system and you need to, your, your character has all of these assets that you've sort of either purchased or mm -hmm. won throughout the, you know, the time that you've been playing this game, you know, weeks, months, years. If you get on a plane and you're in Los Angeles, you get on a plane and you fly to London and you land and you go to your friend's house and you log in as your yeah. user on that same game, you should have the exact same inventory and uh, and settings and rankings and stuff as you did back in Los Angeles. And, and that come, that happens through no small part of some sort of cloud service on the back end. Now, that's been around for a long time, um, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, 10 12, 15 years that, you know, the, the rudimentary yeah. forms of those came about. But what's happening now um, and what's evolved is, well, obviously, I'm going to say, you know, the block, the B word blockchain yep. um, and Web3 and the ability to deploy and store these tokens in uh, on the blockchain, which means that you can sort of decouple ownership of assets or rankings from any one service. So in a way that's, you know, that sort of had, had stops and starts, you know, like this whole web three thing. Um, I yep. hope you have somebody joining you soon on this series to discuss that, but um, that's sort of evolved over the years alongside. Now there's some other things that are, that have also had stops and starts and that's um, cloud streaming of games. Mm. Um, you, your, your, your listeners should probably know uh, that Google had a, a gaming platform called Stadia, which was um, sort of hailed with great fanfare when announced. Um, it was essentially, if for those who don't know, Stadia was, it was past tense, um, a game platform that you could run from any browser on any device with an internet connection. So that means you don't have to go out and buy a PlayStation or uh, or an Xbox, um, or you don't need to have a ten thousand uh, dollar Windows PC uh, with a you know crazy powerful <laughs> GPU. You could have a, a Chromebook or a lightweight laptop uh, or an inexpensive computer and a good internet connection, and you can play real time four K games using your Chrome browser, for example. Mm -hmm. I think it ran in other browsers. Yeah. Um, Stadia was uh, sort of hailed as the sort of next generation of of gaming and um, and that there's also peers to Stadia. Um, Nvidia has a service called GeForce Now, which is st obviously yep. still running mm -hmm. and, and it's somewhat successful. And then PlayStation Cloud Streaming is also a thing. But um, Google turned down. We call it. We shut down the service. We call it turned down. Uh, <laughs> we turned down the service. I think last year um, because it was it was it's a hard market to be in because you have to have all of the latest titles and relationships with all the studios and the publishers um, mm -hmm. in order to get that up and running. And there was also, it turns out people like their hardware. Um, mm -hmm. And this is something that I've observed amongst gamers is that 
yes, it is you know more expensive and 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 more cumbersome to own your own PC or your own Xbox. Um, it is more cumbersome to to go to a store and purchase a game on disc. Yeah. Um, most most days uh, these days it's it's downloaded off the off the cloud. But um, people like to own these consoles, and they are sort of I wouldn't say reluctant to give them up, but I don't think the time is is right yet for a hundred percent cloud-based game streaming services. Um, Maybe we there's need another generation. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, th this is sort of, we're still in the early days of it. And I think um, you also need good internet bandwidth and you need what's called low latency yeah. to wherever the games are being streamed. And if you're in, um, you know, Europe or North America, yeah, sure, you've got inexpensive yeah, gigabit that. service. Yeah. Um, yeah, but if you're in either uh, you know a remote location or um, or developing country or somewhere uh, you know that is not in a near a city center, a metropolitan yes. center, then the distance from you to wherever the resources are running these games yeah. that's called the latency, and you measure that in milliseconds. And yeah. anything over uh, I mean, there's numbers out there that you can draw on, but let's say up to 40 or 50 milliseconds will give you sort of a real-time experience um, when you're playing a game. So you're playing a game uh, streaming over the web and you're in a first-person shooter game and you pull the trigger and the, uh, the gun fires, but it fires 50 milliseconds after you pull the trigger, right? Like that's how long it takes the signal to get from your finger across the wires to the resource and then back. Don't forget it's a round trip. Mm -hmm. um, anything beyond that is not going to feel good, right? Like it's not going to feel like a real-time yeah. experience. So therefore, if you're somewhere that's too far away um, or your internet bandwidth is not good enough, um, you're not going to want to do game streaming. That's that's mm -hmm. sort of a, a limitation there. So mm -hmm. evolution is, is there for certain uh, situations, but um, I think... Uh, I, th I think that's what's happened over the last number of years, and and we're still trying to establish those those norms um, uh, of people who are reluctant to give up uh, yeah. an actual physical uh, device, a console device. Well, I, suppose I can understand that. So keeping up your records, mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, you, you talked about the latency. I, w I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that, but thank you for for sort of uh, addressing that in terms of um, the issues with. Um, gamers in certain regions mm -hmm. is is there something being done about that uh, is there something you guys are doing about that to 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 reduce that absolutely yes yeah. so and i was going to mention this in, in the previous um soliloquy but uh so what came out of stadia um is there was a lot of research user experience research into latency and how to reduce that latency or reduce the perception of latency which is a really interesting area of study um, because you can do things like, when I say reduce the perception, I mean, there, if you measure the actual latency in milliseconds, it might seem high, but the way that the, the, the way that it feels to the end user yeah. does not seem as high. And Stadia, with, with the Stadia service, we developed a streaming protocol um, whose name is, I'm forgetting now, but it's not, it's just an internal name for it for mm -hmm. Google. But we have um, the the learnings and, and the research that we took out of there. We actually preserved and we're uh, we've we've built it into a few other 
products that are up and running on, on Google Cloud. For example, there's something called Immersive Stream for XR mm -hmm. uh, that runs on, on Google Cloud. If, uh, if your listeners go to, I think it's xr.withgoogle.com, um, you could see a bunch of demos. And essentially, those are uh, augmented reality experiences, mostly in, in this case for retail, but there's other applications for it. But mm -hmm. like when you think about it, um, you take a mobile device and you go to a website and you, for the new, for example, uh, the new Ford F-150 Lightning, which is their electric pickup truck, mm -hmm. and you can visualize it um, in your driveway. Uh, you, it uses the phone's telemetry and the phone's camera to, and, and a whole lot of other technology to place that, that vehicle uh, in your field of view and it's life-size and you can walk around it. But what's happening there is nothing is really downloaded to the mobile device, to your phone. Um, those pixels are streaming from the cloud. And that means that you can have, and we'll hopefully get into this as well, that we could do what's, what would I like to refer to as the heavy lifting on cloud. And the phone or the mobile device is just a lightweight client that's receiving the pixel stream. Mm -hmm. And in order to make that experience really crisp and, and quote unquote feel good, you have to reduce the latency as much as possible, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you move your phone and the, the, the vehicle on the phone, you know, is sort of floating over the ground. Uh, it's not going to, you're going to sort of dismiss it as, you know, it's just a gimmick. It's not really good, but the way that Immersive Stream for XR does it really well is they've taken that, that latency reduction technology or latency estimation, I believe is what it's doing. And it's doing some sort of machine learning estimation of the directional changes of the phone and the velocity of the telemetry of the phone. And it's sort mm -hmm. of counteracting that. So it's sort of guessing the direction you're gonna move your phone and mm -hmm. it's going to, change the positioning of the object in the augmented reality view in anticipation of that. So you could have 100, 120, 150 milliseconds of latency with that service, with that mm -hmm. immersive stream XR service, but it'll still look and feel like a really great experience. And that's mm -hmm. some of the, 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 the learnings that we pulled out of uh, the Stadia service yeah. um, that are going into some other, other products, which uh, are, you know, it's unfortunate that Stadia was turned down, but we 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 gained a lot of knowledge and research from that. Yeah. From that, that's good. That's good. And you know, moving away sort of from latency and in certain regions, let's just handle um, peak loads. How is the management of peak loads addressed to uphold presumably interrupted gameplay experiences during periods of high demand or events? Could you provide insights into the operational setup? So. As part of the cloud gaming group, we have these sort of internal, I guess you could call them war rooms, um, which is sort of a gathering of technical uh, uh, support um, mm -hmm. engineers that um, are their site reliability engineers, SREs and others in anticipation of a game launch. So we know that this publisher is launching this game on this yeah. date or this yeah. weekend, for example. And we gather uh, a group of these technical experts to ensure that the, uh, the platform can support the, the, the anticipated demand. The publisher will tell us how many people, how many users they anticipate to want to play this game when it's, when it's released, mm -hmm. for example. And, and usually that's like the biggest, um, yeah. one of the biggest uh, uh, 
surges of, of interest and, and, and uh, peak load demand on mm-hmm. the system. So not only do we have a bunch of you know, human knowledgeable experts, subject matter experts uh, managing this, uh, this, this load demand, but the, the very nature of cloud allows you to scale based on things mm-hmm. like uh, CPU load or bandwidth load or, or uh, 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 requests uh, per, per second uh, or queries per second. Um, every time uh, a new user joins, there, it sort of anticipates how many more hosts or servers are going to be required to, to, uh, to, to accommodate this load. And then there's the global factor, meaning people all over the world might be playing yes. this new game once it's released. We can deploy identical and connected workloads to any of our data centers around the world. I think, I think we have twenty-seven or twenty-eight major data centers around the world, and then mm-hmm. there's a bunch of network data centers. I, the number changes all the time, of course, but I don't have the latest number in front of me. But um, and and this is where I was getting to um, some of the boring backend stuff, mm-hmm. like the global databases, like our Spanner da- database, for example, which connect all of these different regions. So you're running these game servers as close as possible to the humans, right? So in Tokyo and in London and Netherlands and uh, South Africa and, you know, Los Angeles, New York, Montreal, Brazil, uh, uh, um, uh, Rio de Janeiro, and and, uh, we have one in Santiago, I think. And those data centers are all obviously connected by Google's, you know, massive global fiber network, which, you know, we lay cables under the sea and, and, and we have all these redundancies built in for our network. But then there's the global database that connects all these things so that you've got players that might be in a multi-game mode that are playing against, you know, players on the other side of the world. Um, all of these... Uh, signals and this this game state information can be handed off uh, from one side of the planet to the other, um, and we deploy and scale these individual pods of hosts in the regions where the where the humans are. Mm. So, and then there's all these sort of like very technical backend things like um, uh, Kubernetes uh, GKE Kubernetes engine mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kubernetes engine that um, can uh, scale these these sort of groups of uh, what we call pods of uh, of individual users on a single host, and then these uh, these clusters of hosts can scale dynamically and very very quickly. That's the key: is that you can deploy in in GKE and Kubernetes, really, you can deploy these new things really, very quickly. It, it really does sound like military precision. What you're telling me in terms of. <laughs> <laughs> it really, it really, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of metaphors like the war room and, and, yes. and uh, you know, these sort of attack angles and stuff like that. Well, it's, you know, like the precision and reliability with which we need to run these workloads, we treat almost like uh, with military precision right. because we make these promises to our customers right. of uh, what we call a certain number of nines of reliability, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Um, there's services that are, you know, five nines of reliability. That means 99.999% of the time the service is up and available. That's five nines, right? Two nines on the left side of the decimal and three on the right. Um, So um, because obviously we want, and this is, you know, this is me speaking as a Googler, not uh, just as, as Adrian, the, uh, you know, chief architect guy. Um, 
our customers are obviously dependent and reliant upon us uh, to to run their services dependably and reliably. And if we, we have so many caveats, um, or not caveats, but uh, so many sort of parallel uh, workloads and mm -hmm. failover plans um, in place that if, you know, God forbid a region or a zone goes down, we could just as easily as, as something is flipping, flicking, flipping a switch, yeah. you can shift traffic yeah. from one zone to another or from one region to another. Um, and, and, and the user will experience either nothing or maybe like a tiny little, you know, half a second of pause. Uh, that's totally expected on the internet. Oh, it's just the people behind the scenes will be stressed, but the youth as well. Exactly. A millisecond of a, a pause, probably not even noticing, but completely seamless. So, yeah. okay. All right. It's a bit like sort of the swan thing where you, you're pedaling away under the sea, and that's you guys. Whereas we're <laughs> the games on the So that's what I'm yeah. picturing. Okay. All right. Let, let, let's, let's talk about data. Um, sort of, I was wondering what data, what insights, and um, analytics do you gather from the users' interactions of gamers with games hosted on Google Cloud? And importantly, how does this data inform your decision making and optimization efforts? Hmm. Um, I think Google in particular doesn't necessarily gather the data that maybe we're, you're, you're speaking about. I think the customers are able to gather the data. We give them the tools to gather the data on on their platform that runs on our, our service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but that means that the customers can then collect uh, things like player statistics and, mm -hmm. um, you know, th there's like win loss metrics, for example, or reaction times. Um, and there's a lot of interesting things that customers are doing with that. They can either sometimes based on the data that they're gathering, they can do things at a sort of a, a, a macro level. Mm -hmm. Like they could see, you know, these tens of thousands of players are all, uh, you know, peaking uh, activity at this time of day, therefore, um, and this time of week, therefore we can customize our anticipated um, deployment pattern uh, to accommodate, you know, this many sort of in anticipation of, of uh, that type of load. That's mm -hmm. the macro level or the micro level where you can go down to individual players and you can maybe even take uh, that type of data and customize the, um, the, how challenging or easy the game is based on their gameplay, right? You want to make the game, and this is sort of getting into game theory, right? You want to make the game as fun as possible, but if it's too hard, it doesn't become... Uh, it, you know, becomes less fun. Like mm -hmm. if, if you're constantly defeated or if it's too easy, it's, you know, in the same thing, it's not as fun because you're just like, oh, I can just, you know, finish this level very easily. Mm -hmm. um, imagine if you will, uh, I'm old enough to remember playing Pac-Man and uh, it, you know, there is a way to just sort of beat the system and, and, and beat the level dependably mm -hmm. because you knew what the ghosts were doing, right? Like you knew how to get around them and how to uh, get away from them. Imagine if the ghosts had the ability to, um, based on the analytics gathered and the data gathered from yeah. your gameplay and your reaction times and how quickly you make you're perceived to make decisions. Imagine if the ghosts were able to update their behavior and sort of in using AI. This might be a segue, but using AI and some sort of machine learning pattern model uh, change how they behave 
to make the game harder or easier. Um, you know, would that have made Pac-Man more or less interesting? It's it's hard to tell. I mean, Pac-Man's a very rudimentary game, but you get the idea. Think of a of, of a modern 3D game uh, where the NPCs or the non-playing characters are you know, like they're for the most part, they're pretty dumb, right? Like they do exactly as expected and you could very easily peg them off. But now we're starting to see uh, where uh, we're starting to see based on, on human user play, the NPCs are doing different things and more interesting things. Mm-hmm. Um, either, you know, fighting back harder or they're reacting to you. We can get into this later, but they're yeah. reacting to you and speaking to you in sort of customized and interesting ways. And I think all those things can be, sort of distilled from gathering these analytics. And, and again, it's the game publishers and the games themselves that are gathering these mm-hmm. statistics, mm-hmm. storing them and they're computing them and they're understanding them on GCP mm-hmm. or on whatever cloud service they're running on. But Google itself doesn't gather that data. There's different data that Google gathers if it's a game streaming data or we can inject things, but that's, I think we, we're gonna get to that a little a little bit later. Yeah, we will, we will. Um, I read this somewhere and, and thought it would be good for if you could share this with my listeners. It's about a recent collaboration. Um, if you could tell my listeners about working with um, NVIDIA just before the um, G, GPU Technology Conference 2023, um, I'm writing, and I quote, uh, I'm writing a guide to running an Omniverse Nucleus server on Google Cloud. What is that all about? Sort of in that moment, <laughs> It's, well, it sounds interesting. <laughs> that uh, funny you should mention that because it's not that interesting. But but that <laughs> part of it is not that interesting. But Omniverse and it's Nvidia on the Omniverse mm-hmm. is very very interesting. Um, and so this is sort of our Nvidia Omniverse. Let me let me give your listeners a, a tiny bit of a background because it's it's kind of a complicated concept. But Nvidia. Okay, think of Google Docs, right? Where you've got a, a, a Google Doc, not a sheet, not a sheet, not a spreadsheet, but a, a you know you're using Google Doc, and you share that Google Doc with somebody else, and they could be you know in the next room or they could be across the planet. But if you're both looking at the same doc and you're both making changes, you could see what each other is doing, right? Like you could mm-hmm. see their cursor, they could see the, the the text they're adding or editing or or whatever. Imagine that, but for 3D scenes, game engine scenes, CAD environments, um, visual effects applications. Imagine you could do that where you're using um, AutoCAD, for example, or Revit, uh, if you're an engineer, or Maya or 3D Studio Max or Houdini, if you're a visual effects artist, or Unreal Engine uh, or Unity, uh, if you're a game developer. Um, Imagine that you can do that same shared collaborative activity, but with those applications. So Omniverse is sort of the platform that enables that. And if you could imagine the hub of a wheel being Omniverse, and then each spoke of that wheel that pokes into the hub is a separate application. Um, And by application, I mean one of those content creation applications that I was referring to, or there's other environments, but don't want to get too complicated. So Omniverse allows the the collaboration between different roles and different stages of sort of data and environment development. Here's here's one example. 
Um, and this is a sort of a simple example, but there's much more complicated ones. Um, uh, you're a car manufacturer and you're designing a new vehicle and you design the vehicle in an engineering package. Uh, like I'm not, you know, a, a real engineer. I just play one on TV, but like yeah. maybe they're doing it in Revit or I, I know there's other, you know, sort of fluid simulation programs that you could do yeah. airflow studies, but let's not figure out that yet. So, um, and I want to work and, and the, the marketing and advertisement teams have asked me to um, share the, the, the latest uh, prototype model with, uh, with them so that they could start the ad campaign. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also have an agreement with, um, you know, some uh, uh, gaming publisher that wants to do a racing game that includes this new as yet to be released vehicle. So I am in Revit, for example, and I can uh, publish my, uh, my model to Omniverse. And it's mm -hmm. actually, this is where the, the Nucleus server comes in because the Nucleus is the hub of that wheel when you think about it. Mm. And I publish it to the Nucleus server and the other users who are maybe the marketing and advertising side who are gonna bring that vehicle into uh, into Maya and they're going to do some some very high quality 3D rendering of it or an animation of it for a commercial um, they can subscribe or they can they can draw on that published content that mm -hmm. vehicle mm -hmm. and bring it into Maya and mm -hmm. somebody working in Unreal Engine for example that's developing a game a racing game can bring that same published model into Unreal Engine and start to rig it up with uh, suspension and, and different controls for mm -hmm. you know games game controls and stuff now that's not just a one-way, uh, not just a one-way oh, balance, nice. right? So, and you know, maybe this is early in the stages of vehicle development where the design changes. Maybe they, you know, change some of the, you know, they add a spoiler or some, you know, different wheels or yeah. whatever. That's the 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 engineer on the on the Revit or the AutoCAD side can make that change, and that change will propagate to those other users, to those two. Unreal Engine into Maya, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and it can go the other way too. Somebody in Maya can make a change and, and publish that and push it back to uh, to the engineer side. Maybe it's you know not necessarily uh, desired, but mm -hmm. uh, it's impossible. So the Nucleus server is sort of sits at the middle of all of that. And that's the first step into getting these workloads running on cloud. As of as of right now, it's mostly Omniverse's run on-prem because you need very specialized GPUs to do this. And we have a subset of those specialized GPUs on cloud so far, but the, the Nucleus server, for reasons I won't go into, does not need a, a GPU to run, mm -hmm. um, but it is the hub of that wheel. So it's, um, it is sort of um, uh, part source control and part database and part translation layer between mm -hmm. all these different applications mm -hmm. and omniverse and like i said that's one tiny simple example there's there's like factory simulations that are running on omniverse there's mm. uh, entire um the uh, uh there it, it, not just factories but um you know their goal is to run you know small smart cities within this environment okay. um and that's something we can get into with digital twin but but that's you know one of the so one of the key points there is that mm -hmm. the nucleus, like its name implies, is sort of the heart of all 
all just, that. Just for clarity on something, you, you said it's sort of two, I'm getting my head around this, you said it's sort of two ways. So who would control it? I mean, you, you said that the, en- the, engineer, the engineer can make a, a, a change on the design, whereas the marketeers can also make, is there a control on any of this? Yeah, because yes, because you can um, you can subscribe to sort of live updates if you want, but just like source control, you can also branch. Uh, uh, you can also branch a, a code base or yep. or a published set of data yep. that only you are making changes to. Yeah. Um, okay. But in the scenario to push back the other way would be um, the uh, the person in. Um, the person that pulls the model into Maya um, adds um, uh, the, the like the, the the suspension and the game controls and stuff yeah. in Maya. They can then push that change, and the person uh, in uh, Unreal Engine can draw on those mm-hmm. changes, mm-hmm. And, and, and they can collaborate and go back and forth in real time, um, and 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 work together to you know using Unreal Engine or sorry using Omniverse. Mm-hmm as a translation layer. It's it's kind of a brilliant business decision by NVIDIA because essentially it's, Omniverse is centered around something called USD or Universal Scene Description, which is basically a, a, a file format when it gets to, right down to it, that um, stores all kinds of data, 3D data and mesh and geometry and texture and UVs and and uh, materials and, and lights and, and a billion other things mm-hmm. it stores it in the common format and each of these applications uh or what we call connectors i believe or what they call connectors can speak this language they they translate to this usd format and omniverse is adept at feeding at, at ingesting this format and and feeding it to other subscribers like other applications mm-hmm. as fast mm-hmm. as possible um I think it's it's you know this is the type of thing that would require some visuals. So I, I think I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that. And um, other collaborations with Nvidia or some of the other game industry enablers that you'd like to share? We have uh, we Google has a massive fleet of GPUs uh, mm-hmm. around the world uh, distributed across most of our data centers, and the. Uh, NVIDIA GPU, uh, these are all NVIDIA GPUs. We don't have any, we don't partner yet at this point with other GPU um, uh, partners. Um, Although some of your careful listeners will note that we did not use NVIDIA GPUs on Stadia. Those were AMD GPUs, but that's a whole different story. You can sort of research that for yourself. Um, But we have a very close partnership with NVIDIA for, for GPU enablement on GCP because they're in such amazingly high demand. Um, for most, well, a, a large percentage is for machine learning and artificial intelligence and generative AI. Um, and a sub, a smaller portion of that is for visualization and rendering and simulation. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to talk about um, collaborations, uh, you know, NVIDIA is sort of the industry leader at this. And like I mentioned about Omniverse, they're, the way that they build and deploy, and I know I'm going to sound like an NVIDIA fanboy, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's such a brilliant business model. I didn't want to say that, but carry on. <laughs> I, I, totally. I, yeah. Uh, they, hmm. NVIDIA offers 
acceleration libraries for free to ISVs, uh, to software developers, so that they could take these software, these acceleration libraries and inject them and uh, import them into their, their own software. Um, and I believe it's license-free, but I could be wrong. But what these libraries do is they accelerate certain tasks within the software, um, sometimes exponentially, you know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. it's not just, you know, speeding it up by 50%. It's, mm -hmm. you know, the difference between uh, a one hour render and, and a 10 second render. Um, it's sometimes that dramatic. Now these accelerations, these speed ups only happen if you run on NVIDIA hardware, on NVIDIA GPUs. And that's the brilliant business plan, business decision, is that you've got these very specialized um, libraries that, uh, that, that are natively or accelerated in what we call in hardware on the GPU. Um, and I think that's what makes NVIDIA so unique in, in, in the world and, and why there's such market dominance um, is that, uh, first of all, they've sort of made GPUs uh, a, a very highly in demand just uh, at the consumer level, right? Like, you know, everybody's sort of drooling over the new, you know, 4090 or, or you know, whatever the, the latest uh, release mm -hmm. from, from uh, the, the NVIDIA consumer side is. But on the cloud side, they've become absolutely indispensable for running these massive models. And, and NVIDIA has always been there at the forefront of accelerated compute. And starting with, uh, starting about 10 years ago, um, researchers realized that um, lar while well, large language models didn't, didn't really exist that long ago, but um, uh, neural networks, uh, deep deep neural networks, and and, uh, and and types of machine learning were greatly accelerated with GPUs. GPU stands for Graphics Processing Unit. They originally developed to uh, for game engine technology and mm -hmm. to display uh, graphics on screen. And uh, but how they're doing that is by massively speeding up very specific uh, mathematical based tasks. And what requires a lot of very uh, fast mathematical calculations is machine learning and artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So it sort of just so happened that GPUs were able to massively accelerate uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence and, and Gen AI model uh, training and stuff. Um, and, and now they're just in, in massively high demand. So, you know, what is, what are the, I mean, the collaborations with NVIDIA are, we have, a whole lot of their GPUs are distributed uh, in our cloud, across our cloud, uh, around the world, and we're offering customers these on a you know on a per second, per minute, per hour basis, um, and and at massive scales, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. they're very hard to get, but you know some of our biggest customers run thousands and thousands of GPUs on 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 our cloud uh, mm -hmm. concurrently to run model training and 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 all types of simulations. That would otherwise be impossible on CPUs. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. That that's good. Thanks for that, Adrian. I'm just conscious of the time, and I know we've got a few questions to get through um, with you. Um, I think you've already covered the the next to a degree when we talked about machine learning and AI, and you've given me one or two case studies and examples of that, and how it's enhanced the the cloud gaming experience. So I think we can sort of jump that, unless there's anything you need to add on to that. Um. No, I think I yeah, I think I covered that a little yeah, bit. I think you've earlier. pretty much covered that. But so yeah. let's move on to um what this series is all about. It's the next generation cloud. So 
In your own words, can you summarize your understanding of next generation cloud and next generation gaming? Note, I've received completely different answers with every guest, so it'd be interesting to hear what you've got to say now. Um, it's hard to see the forest for the trees when it comes to next generation cloud because we're, we, Google, and Google Cloud are constantly iterating on the efficiency and the functionality of our platform. And, you know, all the CSPs are doing that. All the cloud service providers are doing that. But and it, I did give this some thought and I I, I want to focus on, on GPUs. I think the next generation cloud is going to, first of all, GPUs are very hard to get and they're too, in, in some customers' eyes, too expensive. Um, for certain things, but what we're starting to see is people are accommodating that or uh, they're adapting to that by making their computations more efficient and becoming more specialized. And I think what's going to happen next generation cloud is you're going to be able to buy, you're going to be able to purchase a slice of a resource as opposed to the whole resource. And it's going to become sort of more obfuscated from Instead of saying um, I need to purchase uh, or I need to run a GP uh, a host with a GPU attached, I can run a host with only a quarter or an eighth of a GPU attached. What we call a slice of a GPU, mm -hmm. and I think that's going to open up all sorts of new workloads. That, like I mentioned earlier, um, the immersive stream for XR, for example, some of those workloads don't need an entire GPU, and that's kind of what's holding things back right now from all sorts of things running on cloud is that we need to generate these graphics somehow, but an entire GPU is overkill for, uh, you know, visualizing a, a vehicle in your driveway, for example, or playing a very low level game. If you could, if you could assign that task to a portion of a resource or a portion of a GPU, mm -hmm. that's going to allow you to sort of multiply your user base by, you know, five, 10, uh, fold. Mm -hmm. Um, at a, at a reduced cost. So I think the next generation cloud is going to become, it's going to be cheaper. And I think we're going to be able to take advantage of more sort of globally distributed workloads. Like when you think about during, uh, during the day, uh, during the week in the United States, all of the cloud resources are at capacity or they're occupied because the services are running, um, the services are running when people are awake and and the and uh, the economy is humming, and then overnight that capacity sort of settles down, and there's uh, other parts of the world sort of uh, yeah. start to spike. Um, why can I not? It, and and this is sort of like part of of uh, cloud architecture being designed well or well arch well well architected infrastructure to take advantage of resources somewhere in the world where the demand is lower. And that's not necessarily baked into our, mm -hmm. our platform right now, but I think in the future, it'll be much easier to just say, give me a bunch of resources. I don't care where they are in the world. Mm -hmm. You figure it out. You being, mm -hmm. you know, pretending that Google cloud is a, is a person and we'll be able to take these workloads and distribute them to where the resources are where it's in the middle of the night in Asia and the, the demand is less, basically load balance around the world, load balance these workloads. And you know, do they have to be graphics workloads or gaming workloads? Maybe they don't have to be, but um, 
you know, that's not an easily solved problem yet, but I think next generation cloud, we're going to be able to, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. take advantage of that. So the word is optimization. That's what I'm hearing. Optimization. We optimization. Well, this notion, this sort of nerdy notion we call bin packing, which is basically maximizing the use of a given resource uh, at all times, because the most efficient use of a resource is to maximize its load 100%. Um, but of course, that means you're sort of sold out for resources you know, mm -hmm. uh, in that region. But uh, you know, distribute the load uh, around the world and and maximize the use in each mm -hmm. in each mm -hmm. locale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Excellent. Thanks for that. Um, going forward and looking to the future, um, I think when you talked about your understanding, your definition of next generation cloud, you kind of answered a little bit of that question this question, but I'm going to put it to you again, perhaps this, you might expand on something else, but it, it's, more, it's about the main trends and challenges you see with cloud gaming on Google Cloud. And interestingly, how are you preparing for them? Mm. I, have, I, I have in my head a few challenges and a few trends to highlight. And I think, let's start with the challenges. Um, we're seeing this big wave of, of generative AI. And I have to say, I will admit, I am not 100% sold on generative AI. I, I think it's still at its novelty phase. Mm -hmm. um, and in my opinion, that's because of a lack of control um, and persistence of parameter and, uh, and, and the ability to control each and every individual facet of a creation is something that has typically been the domain of an artist, right? Like I spent my whole career building these... Uh, either pipelines or effects rigs uh, mm -hmm. or uh, controls for an animation where let's say you've got uh, a shot where you need to design, uh, do a run a fluid dynamic simulation of a wave and a surfer running on this wave or surfing this wave. And you do this beautiful uh, simulation, fluid dynamic simulation uh, of a wave crashing over a beach. And then the supervisor looks over your shoulder and they say, that's great, but can you sort of, you know, make the waves uh, two foot, two feet higher and move it over, you know, uh, six feet to the left. And you can't do that with a generative AI prompt. Um, you can't really describe that in language. You need to build all these controls into these mm. sort of visual environments so that you can make these little tiny tweaks and sort of layer them one upon another. Mm -hmm. um, and every time you run it, it needs to be identical so that when you make a change, you just make that one little tiny change and the rest of it remains unchanged. So I, I feel like this wave of Gen AI needs to settle down. The excitement needs to settle down before we really start to find it useful. If anything, it's sort of a, a, a base, um, a good starting point, but then you sort of should be able to freeze it in place. And then as an artist or an engineer go from there and, and, and expand on it. Um, I think that's one of the challenges. Another one is the scarcity of resources I've mentioned. Yep. Um, and uh, that streaming, game streaming is not taken off as mm -hmm. expected. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we need to rethink that. And But then leading into more of the trends that yeah. I'm seeing, obviously gaming is getting more realistic and um, the environments mm -hmm. are getting larger. Uh, and you can, uh, with, uh, you know, some games, you can drive a vehicle through a city that is almost the same size as the actual city, um, uh, as, as the city is in real life. Uh, and, and you could go down, you know, go into buildings and, and, and into, you know, rooms and buildings that mm -hmm. are infinitely designed. Now, can you use generative AI to generate all that? 
maybe. And can you do it on the fly? That's a really interesting question. Um, but what we're starting to see is these games are not necessarily games as much as they are simulations. Yeah. And when you have a simulation, you can choose how, to, how realistic or non-realistic to make it. But now we're starting to see these sort of lines blurring between yeah. game and simulation and what I call digital, what we call digital twin of like, what if there's a simulation of an entire city that you can play a game in or city planners can actually watch how people move through that city or take the real city and feed the data, for, the movement data from the real city into the simulation and tweak how, you know, traffic patterns work and, and, and human flow of goods and services and stuff. Like, you know, is that a game? Is it real life? Is it a simulation? Um, I, I think there's sort of trends towards that. It's a, it's a huge and challenging problem. And, you know, we have to obviously ask ourselves the question, do we really want to do that? But is it fun to play a game in a city that's realistic or in a city that is sort of, you know, dialed up a little bit? Like, I think that's why, um, uh, I, I think like, some titles are it doing sounds like, it. It sounds like you're coming up with moral dilemmas here. Well, uh, yeah, to a certain extent, but also remember when I you know, mentioned earlier that, you know, if the game is too easy, it's boring. And if it's too hard, it might also be boring. Well, you have to make it as sort of visually interesting and sort of provide surprises and unexpected results to sort of keep things interesting. Mm -hmm. um, like Grand Theft Auto, for example, people, you know, there aren't like boring, normal people in that game. When you encounter these NPCs, they're like, you know, sort of like the, the seedy side of, of, uh, of urban humanity. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of funny and interesting things that happen in that game. Whereas if you drive down the street in, in, in a similar city, like, you know, there's GTA in different cities, you, you hopefully will never encounter that. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's still a game and it's still, the idea is still to entertain. So a real, a real a super realistic simulation might not be that interesting to play, you know, in, in a way it's kind of too easy. Um, and, mm -hmm. and you sort of want to sort of customize these challenges of the simulation mm -hmm. to do that. I, th I think that's some of the trends that I'm seeing, but mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's hard to tell because the, the, the technology, the, the resources and the specifically the um, GPUs and global yeah. networking are sort of all combining to make uh, to, to sort of provide us with a platform, a globally available platform that is sort of infinite in scope. And, you know, I haven't even touched on the word metaverse, but, you know, we'll save that for next time. <laughs> I, I, I had a question in mind about the metaverse, but I deliberately mm. left it out and maybe I, maybe I should just throw it in very quickly. Why not? And if, if you could answer that very, very briefly, I'm going to put it in. It was really just an off the cuff question. Um, because uh, I got a straight answer from a previous guest and I just wanted to know your answer. Is the metaverse on the decline? I think it's, it's not on decline. I think it's being retooled right now. I think people's notion of the metaverse is, uh, and, and, you know, along the lines of, um, Oh man, I'm, now I'm forgetting. Uh, I see, I haven't talked about metaverse in, in like a number of months. Okay, Neil Stevenson, Snow Crash. That's where, um, that's where the, the term was coined. And the metaverse in that book, a highly recommended, interesting book, was a single virtual, not, not even an environment, but it was a planet that uh, 
that existed, uh, there was a single metaverse. And what we're seeing is multiple metaverses. And I think each, you know, there's going to be a metaverse for, you know, Google's going to have its own metaverse maybe, and Apple mm -hmm. and Facebook, obviously, and Meta is, is you know, further ahead on that. Um, but I think there's, they're finding that there's no sort of common thread uh, that's tying any of these together. And they're also finding that these sort of immersive technologies like the goggles, like VR goggles and, and headsets mm -hmm. um, are not really, you know, what people are ready to wear or want to wear. And, you know, who knows if Apple's new uh, headset is going to sort of sort of spark that um, that movement of sort of making people comfortable wearing these th this headgear to have these immersive experiences. Mm -hmm. But I think that in backing, you know, that's sort of the canonical metaverse definition. When you think about it, we are sort of already functioning in sort of an analytical metaverse, right? Where there is the the trappings of a metaverse like persistence and the passage of time. Um, when you exit and you re-enter, the, the, the state is the same. Um, but like, the, the, you know, what we talk about when we talk about the metaverse is more of a visual, immersive, other world experience. And I don't know if people are ready for that yet. So I, I think it's going to happen in a number of years. Um, but I think there needs to be a couple of major players that make the public comfortable with experiencing uh, I think, I think, with living experiences like I that. Think, I think the sort of cumbersome headgear that we have, I think in, in the future, people will sort of laugh at it because then yeah. they'll be using glasses, um, you know, simple glasses to wear, as opposed to these clunky headsets. It's a bit like the old mobile phone. Uh, well, that's, that's my thought on that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, if you can think about like regular eyeglasses or spectacles yeah. Yeah. Um, that have a, and, and you've seen this before, um, if you look at... Uh, the Google, I think Google I.O. from a couple of years ago, they showed a prototype of, they just look like regular Ray-Ban glasses, like yep. clear mm -hmm. eyeglasses that project uh, information on the lens that is only visible to the viewer. Yeah. And I'm not talking about Google, this was next generation Google Glass, which has since sort of been, you know, retired again. But mm. um, so this is not, the, this is not virtual reality, this is augmented reality. And I think we're starting to see the metaverse as augmented reality first, meaning you still, and, and this is what Apple has sort of hit the sweet spot there in that you are still seeing the real world, but you're seeing um, graphical overlays yes. and computer generated yeah. elements as part of that physical world that you're seeing, as opposed to complete immersion. I think the world isn't ready for complete immersion, but they are ready for augmented reality, which we're starting to see, in, like steps. I mentioned, in XR and baby steps and, and, and with given technology, right? People are more comfortable yeah. holding a phone in front of their face than yeah. putting on a clunky VR headset. Um, but yeah. who knows what, what's going to happen with, with Apple's okay. and, uh, and the next gen uh, meta uh, quest mm -hmm. as well. It's going to be lighter weight. Okay. I want to briefly, 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 Adrian, mm -hmm. um, let's end this episode um, of this talk and just talk about what excites you, Adrian, the most with the technology that's being deployed in this space. I'll try to be brief. Um, I did mention <laughs> digital twin yeah. technology earlier. And Does that excite you? There, it's, it is very exciting because if you go and look at, for example, what Waymo is doing, Waymo, the self-driving car um, branch of, of Google, um, or of Alphabet, I should say, um, 
we're at a point where we can run a simulation in game engine that is so realistic, we can train a machine learning vision-based model on this virtual environment. Mm -hmm. And when you can do that, you can run simulations in different weather and with different sort of levels of danger that you would never do in the real world. And you can just the fact that you've got a virtual environment with virtual vehicles moving through it, um, with virtual humans moving through it in, in, in accurate ways and virtual pets and, and, and wildlife and street furniture and other vehicles. And you can train uh, a machine learning model in that virtual environment. And you're sort of fooling that, that, that model into believing that it's running in the real world. Mm -hmm. You can run these simulations and train these models that are then fed into the vehicles that are running in the real world. Like the Waymo, uh, the way that Waymo trains its its vision model, started by you know ten years ago, running through the streets of San Francisco, gathering all this data, mm -hmm. and after many years of that, they're able to compile that data and all of those sort of runs and and all those tracking uh, and gathering of data, they can build it into what they call um, simulation city. And there's a couple blogs that you can you can see on Waymo's website that describe how they're doing this. And then they take the virtual model of the vehicle and they run it inside this simulation city and they can continue training. So for example, how often does it rain in San Francisco? How often is it very foggy? Uh, how often is there uh, a traffic uh, pattern that is unexpected? You can run all these in a simulation over and over thousands and thousands of times and train the model to understand what to do in those situations and to perfect the uh, to perfect its behavior and its performance. And then you can take those models and roll them out into the real world vehicles so that they're ready to handle those situations uh, when, they, when they arise. And I mean, when you ask what's, what excites me, I mean, you're basically training a computer inside a computer. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and that's, that's pretty cool, I, I think. And, and there's lots of other examples that are happening in factory simulations. BMW mm -hmm. is doing some really interesting stuff with a digital twin of its entire factory. Um, that's on the NVIDIA website. I think you can, you can read their use case there, um, where you can uh, determine the risk of uh, human injury, of worker injury or strain based on the speed of the, uh, uh, of, of the line running um, and, you know, how much more productive are they going to be and how much more heat are you going to generate from the robots if you turn up the speed of the, of the line by 3% and how much more air conditioning are you going to need and how much more is that going to cost you? Like this can all be run in a simulation and perfected and, and optimized before it's pushed out to the real world. Make the mistakes in the digital world before, so you don't mm. make them in the mm. world. Mm. That's that's interesting, actually. Um, Adrian Graham, we could have easily done two hours or more. Um, many thanks for your time and insights. My pleasure. This is this is a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepinkle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk Podcast.
podcast with your host Elaine Pringle Schwitter.